So I, I started in the first service saying, hey, I'm glad to be back. Um, I have missed this. It, it, about two weeks in, I, I uh, was done watching someone else preach, wanted to preach so bad. But it's, I, I, I didn't say it to him personally. He may still be behind me. But said to the first service, I want you guys to hear it as well. I'm grateful to my brother Matt for serving me the way that he did as he just enabled me to take some time off. Um, but he served you as well. And so I would just encourage you to demonstrate your gratitude. Um, let him know how much he's appreciated. The reality is I hadn't taken time off, uh, really. I mean, I missed a Sunday here or there because I got sick or, you know, had malaria or something like that, uh, really, since, I, since we planted the church um, eight years ago. Uh, this is the first time to be able to really take some extended time to take a break and rest. And anybody that's ever preached or handled the word of God in front of people recognize there's a, a burden that comes with that. And so I'm just grateful for the opportunity we had to, to take a little break. But I am ready to go. And, and as we step in, as we begin to kind of, before we really get back into the re- regularly scheduled programming of Luke, I wanted to take some time this morning uh, as we look to a new season of mission and ministry, just wanted to take some time and just kind of recalibrate just to, to remember what we are about, who we are calling one another to be, who God has called us to be. And the, the, re, the thing is, it's not that you don't hear it. I, I recognize that we talk about uh, the gospel a lot. We talk about worship a lot. Um, you, know, you heard it in the, in the messages last week, for, or not last week, over the last several weeks from Matt. You hear it in our songs every week, um, and, and even before, you know, I mean, if you open your bulletins, if you look at your bulletins, the, the phrase, the purpose for which we exist, to worship and lead others to worship, it's, it's there, it's all over paperwork that, that we print, it's, it's everywhere. So I, I know that we see it, I know that we're reminded of it, but it's not often we stop and just really look at it. And just really think about it and really dwell on it. And so I just, as, as we look at this time... Uh, or look into this new season as, as life settles back down, people, kids are going back to school, lives are kind of settling back into the routine of, of regular living. Um, I just felt like it's important for us to stop and just recalibrate. Because the reality is, is that we all are, are at risk and we all are guilty of drifting. Uh, organizationally, that happens all the time. In fact, maybe you've heard the phrase mission drift or mission creep, and simply what that is is when the organization, when the mission or the purpose of the organization ceases to be its purpose, or it ceases to be about that mission or that purpose. That's critical for us as Christians. It's critical for us as a church to constantly just recalibrate, redirect ourselves, get, get centered on the main things, make sure that we're about the main thing. Otherwise, we'll be about all kinds of other things. Because the truth is, we're all guilty of it. As John Calvin says, that our hearts are idle factories. We're constantly finding something to devote ourselves to, to adore, to commit our lives to, to to serve in some way, to make most important and preeminent in our life. We're always wrestling with that. In our flesh, we're always wrestling with that. It's so vital for us because our purpose, our mission is not one that we created for ourselves or determined on our own. It's one that's been assigned to us by the creator, God, who chose to save and who calls us to worship him above all other things. And so that's what we're going to do over the next couple of weeks. We're going to spend time uh, just, just focusing on what God has called us to uh, from, from, from two focuses, worship and mission. 
and the relationship that exists between them. And, and, and I'm not going to go into it a whole lot today. You'll see it unfold over the next couple of weeks. But this week we look to worship. Before we jump in, I just let me show you, or let me tell you what we're going to try to accomplish today uh, so that you'll see it happening and, and you can kind of follow along a little more easily, I think. So I want to do two things today. I want to answer the question, what is worship? What is true worship? Every one of us worships something, and, but there's a distinction to be made. What is true worship? I don't want us to, to think of this as looking for definitions. Like, I don't, want to, I don't want to preach a sermon today that's going to define worship for you. Uh, maybe like John MacArthur would define worship as honor paid to a superior being. It means to give homage, honor, reverence, respect, adoration, praise, glory to a superior being. Being, we're not looking for a definition like that. We're not looking for a definition like Louis Giglio would say, our response, both personal and corporate, to God for who he is and what he's done, expressed in and by the things we say and the way we live. Both great definitions, but that's not the purpose of this sermon. In fact, we're not trying to define it in academic terms, and we're not trying to build out a definition that would sit neatly in a dictionary. I, I want us to hear the words of Jesus. I want us to understand the essence of of what true worship is. And so we're not going to spend a lot of time looking at the original languages and breaking down the Hebrew and the Greek to, to understand the word that is translated as, uh, to the, the words that are translated as worship. For example, the word today that you'll hear most often is the word proskuneo uh, that's been translated worship. It means to make obeisance, to do reverence to, from pros towards and kuneo to kiss. It's to kiss towards and that's from Vine's coming. We're not looking for that. That's not the point of the sermon. The thing is, is that these would both be great, uh, uh, worthy approaches. But what that would do is that we would build out some knowledge and we would miss the essence. We would miss the nature. We would miss the description, the explanation, the view of worship that's presented to us by our Father God and His Son, Jesus Christ. And that's what I want us to spend time today thinking about. It's not that those definitions are wrong. It's not that looking at the Greek is wrong. But today, as we seek to understand what is true worship, my hope, my prayer for us is that we will hear the words of our Savior and that we will understand it from a perspective that he has come and described and explained and shown us the nature and the essence of what true worship is. And so we're going to be uh, uh, looking at him, his teaching. The second question we're going to seek to answer, that's, First question is, what is true worship? Second question, is my worship, worship true? Once we have answered the question, what is true worship? There's probably no more important question than we can ask. Is my worship true? And no better evaluation to set in front of ourselves. No better light for us to step into and let wash over us that we might see the truth and respond in kind. So today, as we, as we begin this little two-part series, we're going to build out a very, a very foundational perspective and understand that worship is the mission. Worship is the mission. We're going to look at that from John chapter 4, verses 19 through 23. If you've got a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn there and follow along as we read. If you don't, there, if you want, there's a version live event out on uh, the version app. If you are so inclined, all the notes will be there, all the quotes will be there. You'll be able to make your own notes and save it, email it to yourself, whatever, so that you can refer back to it later. Uh, or the Bible's in the chairs 
if you don't have your own, we'd love for you to take that with you, uh, that you can have a copy of God's word. John chapter 4, verses 19 through 23, we're breaking into the midst of, a, of an event, a, a series, a, a story, a, an event in which Jesus interacted with someone. And so let me just set the stage just so that you're kind of familiar with what's happening. So Jesus is, has been doing work in Judea, which is the southernmost part of the nation of Israel. At, at this point, the nation had been divided into three sections. Judea, Samaria is in the middle, and Galilee is in the north. And where we've been studying in Luke, if you need a timeline, where we've been studying in Luke, Jesus has gone into Galilee and he's doing his work there. So what we're going to study today happened before all that we've been studying in the, in the book of Luke. Well, Jesus is working in Judea. He finds out that the Pharisees know that he's baptizing more people than John the Baptist. And because of that, it says because of that, he goes to Galilee. On the way to Galilee, he goes through Samaria. He had two options. He could have gone around Samaria, and most scholars think that Jews would have gone around Samaria because Samaritans and Jews hated, despised, if you will, one another. They couldn't stand one another. Jews thought that Samaritans were half-breeds, and, and Samaritans thought Jews were arrogant. We'll just leave it at that. They thought they were horrible, horrific people for hating them. They, did, they, they felt like they belonged to the, the people of God, and, and the Jews had cast them out, essentially. So there was this hatred, this vehemence, this, this despising of one another. And, and so, so many people think that Jews would have traveled around Samaria rather than going through. Well, Jesus chose to go through Samaria. He went from Judea through Samaria, headed towards Galilee. But he had a very important reason for doing that. He had an appointment. He had a meeting that needed to take place. And, and he gets to this village called Sychar, and he, and, and he stops at this well And he sits down, and his disciples go into the village, and they're looking for food. And he's sitting at the well, and while he's there, around noon, a woman comes to the well all by herself. And he begins to speak to her, and it starts with a request, give me a drink of water. And unfolds. what begins to unfold is the reality of her salvation, the moment of her conversion. You see, Jesus would, would, would talk to her. She'd be surprised by it. He'd confront her with her sin. She'd be blown away. She'd come to find that she had just met the Messiah, the one who they'd been waiting on, the one who God had promised to send to be their Savior. She found out she met him. She would be saved. She'd be given eternal life. And she'd be so amazed by this experience that she'd run back into the village, and not only would she be saved, but she'd tell all these people that she had met Jesus, and she would lead them out, and they would meet him, and many in that village would be saved. This was this powerful moment in Samaria. It is really uh, uh, just, just of, of God's work to redeem a people. It's amazing. But in the midst of this, in the midst of their conversation, in the midst of Jesus' evangelism towards this woman, in the midst of this conversation, he responds to her with an understanding of worship, with a perspective of worship that gives us vital insight today, from which we're going to answer our two questions. What is true worship and is my Worship true. So let's just begin to read John chapter 4, verses 19 through 23. She says, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now this is in response to what's just happened. Like Jesus has never met her. She's never seen Jesus. They don't know one another. Uh, This is the first meeting, and he has just laid out for her that she is an immoral woman. He confronts her with her sinful life. 
And she says to him, I perceive you're a prophet. Like, she didn't react negatively. She didn't beat him up. You know, she just, she didn't uh, abuse him with words. I perceive you're a prophet. Obviously, you know things have had truth revealed to you from God. And then she begins to talk about something different. Not to change the subject, I think, because now she has an opportunity to get a question that burns within her answered. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. This was the heart of the the division between the Samaritans and the Israelites, so the Samaritans and the Jews. The Samaritans, they they wanted to worship God. They they saw themselves as as a part of God's people, his covenant people. The Jews said, no, you're not. You can't worship with us. And your worship is false and fake because you can't worship anywhere but Jerusalem. And in this, there was this division, this hatred towards one another. So she meets somebody that can speak some light into this, speak some truth into this, and she asks. She she seeks an answer. Jesus said to her, verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. And listen, The hour is coming and is now here. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking. Listen, this is vital to to understanding this today. I want you to see it. The Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. We'll stop right there. This beautiful moment. This beautiful moment in which, which Jesus begins to express to this woman what true worship is. What is true worship? Uh, I'm going to give you the, the, the main point that I want to build out. We're going to spend most of our time here as we kind of set this foundation. True worship is the goal of God's redemptive mission in the world. It's not first to get you saved. It's not to promise you heaven. It's not so that when you die, you wake up in heaven. It's not so first and foremost about forgiveness. Yes, all of those things, but not first about those things. You see, we become guilty about making salvation all about us. God is first and foremost about himself. He is a jealous God. The goal of God's redemptive in this world is true worship. And we saw it. I pointed it out. I made sure that you saw it in verse 23. This is what he is seeking. Like He's after this. He is pursuing this. He's working towards this. It's beautiful. This, the, the reality of this, when this begins to settle down on you, when you begin to stop and think about it, just, just, just in the context of today, Not the rest of the week, just in this moment. You you woke up this morning, you went and got a shower. I hope you brushed your teeth. I hope you came here expecting and seeking to worship. Before any of that began, God was seeking your worship. He's seeking you. He's seeking worship from you. 
we, we, we think that worship originates with us. We think that, that, that it's all about, oh, uh, it's, it's me just giving to God what he, what he deserves. It's me honoring Him, adoring Him, devoting myself to Him, obeying Him. We think that it starts with us, but brothers and sisters, this is what God has always been working towards. He's seeking after this. And it's the whole process or the whole presentation of Scripture. Sure, the, the redemptive history that's, that's shown throughout the scriptures, the redemptive history that's demonstrated in the Bible certainly demonstrates that he is redeeming a people unto himself. But what is the purpose for which he is redeeming us? It's worship. Let me just show you this. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve eat from the fruit. They realize they're naked and they become ashamed. This is the first time shame enters the world. Sin enters the world. Shame exists. They begin to hide from one another. They build, make, or they don't build clothes. They make clothes out of leaves and they cover up from one another. And then they hear God. And not only have they hidden from one another, they hide from God. It's like, hey, hey, oh, we, gotta, we, we, we don't want to be found by him. Who seeks who in that passage? Who's seeking who? Who calls out, where are you? Not Adam and Eve. God seeks true worship from true worshipers. And he seeks them, and the reality is, is he finds them in sin. Not that he didn't know it, but they're going to ultimately end up having to have to walk through the consequences. They're going to have to own it and take responsibility and and deal with what comes from their choice to rebel, to worship something other than God, to worship themselves, to believe a lie and turn from worshiping him to a worship of other things. Even in the Garden of Eden, God sought out us. In Exodus, who is the initiator of the covenant with his people? Not the Israelites. God is the initiator of the covenant. And at the heart of his covenant is the law. And at the heart of the law is worship. Not simply, hey, you've got to obey this law. It's, it's, it's worship. For example, the, the moral law, you sum it up, the, the moral law, you sum up into the Ten Commandments. The very first one. You know what it is? It's about worship. You shall have no other gods before me. That is a command to preeminently, or, 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 or I'm sorry, not preeminently, but to only worship God. You shall have no other gods before me. Not just the moral law, the ceremonial law, the, the, the holy days and the sacrifices and the, and the, and the bringing of, of uh, or the atonement for sin that took place in the temple. The building of the temple, the holy of holies being that most central place. was all types and shadows that pointed to our Savior. But the very core of what they were about was worship. The sacrifices made us acceptable to worship. Or made them acceptable to worship. The, the, the holy days set apart for uh, a time to focus on God alone, uh, among all other things, above all other things. Things And the, the Israelites understood this. They totally got this. And I know they did because when Jesus was tested and said, hey, what's the greatest commandment? You know, they're like they're trying to trip him up. What was his answer? Love the Lord your God. We could say worship the Lord your God. Make him preeminent in your life. Make him 
first. And how are we supposed to do that? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with your whole being. And then he says, love your neighbor like yourself. That's the second is like the first. Love your neighbor as yourself. This sums up, he says, this sums up the whole of the law. See, they understood that. They completely got it, that the law and the covenant was built. It was a a plan for worship, that they might worship him, that he would be their God and they would be his people. Skip forward to the book of Judges. I love the book of Judges that... One of my favorite people in all of the scripture is, is in there, Gideon. He's one of my, my favorites. Uh, I identify so closely with him. Uh, just so many insecurities in my heart and mind. It was just, just the reality of it. And this man was insecure, but God used him mightily. But here, God has delivered the Israelites from, the, from, from Egypt. He's brought them through the desert, brings them into the promised land, as he always said he would. And he tells them, now go ahead of me, or go ahead of yourselves. Go, go and drive out all of the pagan nations from ahead of you. Make sure that none of them remain. Make, don't, don't make partnerships with them. Don't intermingle, commingle with them. Don't, don't, don't have anything to do with them. You drive them out. And the Israelites disobeyed. And so God says, you know what, you disobeyed me, but what you failed to do, I'm going to do for you. You can read about this in Judges chapter 1 and chapter 2. What you failed to do, I'm going to do for you, but these people will always be a thorn in your side. And so as, as they begin to, to life in the promised land, they're already, you know, they're already kind of screwing it up, already kind of messing it up, not living in full obedience to God. But everyone, everyone in the nation, the nation was led to worship God, to serve him first and foremost, in their lives, as, as long as Joshua was alive. And, and, and it goes on to say that not only when Joshua was alive, but the elders who were part of the, the leaders that brought, that, that brought Israel into the promised land, even these elders led the nation to worship God. But when they died and a new generation was raised up, look what happens in Judges 2, 11 through 12. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of of the Lord. Now, if that was all we got, we could make up all kinds of things, right? We could, we could determine, well, there's all kinds of things. They must have started smoking cigarettes and drinking alcohol, right? That's how some people would, would determine that. That's not what it says at all. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. They became Baal worshippers. They began to worship other gods. They, 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 they walked into idolatry, willingly walked into idolatry, abandoned God. It says they abandoned the Lord in verse 12. The God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, they, were, they went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. And as a result of this, here's what happens in the book of Judges. And you, you can go back and read it for yourself. If you've never read it, I would encourage you to do so. You get to see the, the grace and the mercy and the, and the power and presence and the majesty of God all wrapped up into this, this one book of the Bible. So they become Baal worshipers. They abandon the Lord that led them, the, the God that led them out of Egypt, and God gives them over to, he begins to give them over to other nations. He allows them to be defeated. He allows them to be, to be uh, oppressed. And so long as they pursue those other gods, this is what happens. And then they, they realize, what are we doing? This is craziness. We're living such miserable existences. Well, what are we thinking? And they'll turn back to God. 
And they'll cry out to him, deliver us, please, oh God, forgive us and deliver us. And God will raise up a judge, and, and the judge that he raised up would then come in as a, as a precursor, or as a type and shadow of Christ, would come in and defeat those who were oppressing his people and lead them back into freedom. And it happened over and over and over. Because John Calvin's right. Our hearts are idol factories. Because the premise of the reason we're doing this series is right. Every last one of us need to be recalibrated constantly. We can't stop thinking about this. We can't stop coming back to this. Because ultimately God is after true worship. It's the whole point of all that he has done. Move into the New Testament. Romans is this beautiful expression, this beautiful description of the gospel. In fact, as theologians study it, I mean, it's just so rich and so detailed and so, so, uh, so broad. I mean, we get to understand so much of God's work. We get to see the very beginning of it, the reason and need for the gospel, because he says in Romans chapter 1, verse 21, that God's wrath is on us. That God's wrath is justified because although they knew God, they neither glorified him or thanked him. They quit worshiping. They turned to false gods. They didn't glorify him. They didn't acknowledge him as God, the source of all problems, the source of all pains and struggles and the, and the fruits of sin in this life, all the evils that exist start in this place. We cease worshiping God. And he goes on to show, he goes on to express the gospel, he goes on to show that this is not just one person, this is not just a couple of people, this is all people. No one is righteous, no, not one. No one seeks God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And he goes on and he goes to show us in Romans chapter 4 and on that through Jesus Christ, actually beginning in Romans chapter 3 and into chapter 4, that, that by faith we are saved because Jesus has come and died in our place for our sins. And we get this beautiful, this beautiful presentation of a great, ex, a great exchange that's takes, that takes place. Is that Jesus Christ takes our sin. He takes all the condemnation. He takes all the sin. He takes all the idol worship. He takes it all and he and he takes it with him to the cross and he dies to, to pay the price for that. But he lives perfectly. He lives righteously. You see, Jesus never broke the first commandment. God was always God to him. He was always father to him. He was the purpose of his living. He was here. That's why he came to glorify the father. He always truly worshipped the father. And the whole scheme of his life, the whole focus of his life brought that out. And because he never broke the first commandment, there was never any other commandment broken. But Paul, after, after teaching us that and showing us all of God's work in the gospel, showing us the benefits of the gospel, the blessings of the gospel, the good, good that comes from, from being found in Christ in Romans chapter 8, comes to Romans chapter 12 and, and, and 11 chapters of teaching on the gospel and God's work to save and redeem a people comes to this point, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, I appeal to you because of everything that I've taught you to this point. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, 
by the mercies of God to present your bodies as living sacrifices and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. God didn't come. He didn't send his son. He didn't do a work simply so he could save people. He saved people so that they could worship. This is the point, the goal of redemptive history. Ephesians details, again, Paul detailing the gospel. The first three chapters are an expression of God's work in the gospel. The the, the second half of the book, chapters four through six, are about what we do in response to the gospel. But he doesn't leave us hanging, wondering why God is giving us the gospel. He shows it to us in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. You can go back when, when, when you have time and you can read it. But he shows that we are blessed, that we are saved, that we are predestined from before the foundation of the world, that we are chosen to be, to be holy and blameless, to, that we are forgiven by the blood of Christ. And why did he do it? To the praise of his glorious grace, that he might be worshipped. And I didn't tell the first service this, so this is a bonus for you because I kind of skipped past it. But when, when it culminates, when Jesus returns and he takes us to be with him, well, is it just simply so we can have a better life? Not alone. Yes, and so that we can worship God forever. So that our life for all eternity would be a glory unto him. See, the whole of redemptive history is God, not just simply saving people. The whole of redemptive history is God restoring, God seeking after, God working towards true worship. So what is it? It's God's goal, it's God's mission in the world to establish this, to make it possible. John Frame, in his book, Worship in Spirit and in Truth, says this, redemption is the means. It's the way it happens. Redemption is the means. Worship is the goal. In one sense, worship is the whole point of everything. It is the purpose of history, the goal of the whole Christian story. Worship is not one segment of the Christian life among others. Worship is the entire Christian life seen as a priestly offering to God. In that moment, in that, in that phrase, he's making reference to First Peter where he talks about us as a holy priesthood. We have been saved to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You were saved and given an inheritance and made righteous, not so you could simply say I'm saved and made righteous, but so that you could worship God with your whole life. This is his goal. He is seeking this worship. And John Frame goes on, when we meet together as a church... Our worship is not merely a preliminary to something else. Rather, it is the whole point of our existence as the body of Christ. God isn't in the business of just simply assembling people for the sake of assembling people. He isn't in the business of just, uh, of just gathering up stuff and saying, look at what I did. He's got a greater purpose, and that purpose is true worship. It is his goal in the, in the redemptive history In fact, he was so given to it, it was so important to him that he sent his only son to make it possible. 
Jesus' life, death, and resurrection empowers true worship. It makes it possible. You can see this back to the text that we originally started with, John chapter 4, verse 23. The hour is coming and is now here. This is Jesus talking about, he's making reference to his arrival, his coming into the world. The life that he's going to live, the perfect life that he's going to live, the sacrificial death that he is going to die, and the victorious resurrection that is going to empower, enable, make us acceptable to truly worship God. God was so given to worship that he suffered, to true worship, that he suffered for it, that he sacrificed of himself for it, that he paid the price to make us able to accomplish it. He didn't save people simply so that they could be students of the word, so that they could sit down and study the word. He didn't save people so that they could simply be people who, who are, are, are followers or who try to live in the example of Christ. He didn't save people so that they could just get together on Sundays once in a while and sing some songs together. He didn't save people that, that, that we would just simply be a people who, who serve him and serve one another. Yes, those are things that we're called to do and those are are, are expressions of worship to study the word. It's an expression of worship, but it doesn't have to be and it isn't always worship. There's plenty of people who study the word and who know a lot about the Bible but do not worship the God that's revealed in the Bible. The Pharisees, Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. There's plenty of those still alive today. I know a lot of atheists who can quote a lot of Bible that they can justify their own understanding and their own view. The first time I looked for anything in the Bible on my own, not the first time I began to really read it and study it, the first time I ever looked for anything in the Bible on my own was simply to justify myself. I wanted to prove that all those people that told me I couldn't drink were wrong. This is is big stuff, so... I wanted to prove to them that they were wrong and I needed to be able to justify myself by the scripture that I could go and drink and party all I wanted. That's, what it, that's why I went to it. That's not worshipful at all. Unless you count me worshiping myself as worship. But that's not true. It's false. He didn't save us just simply so we could serve one another. Yeah, service, it, it can be an expression of worship. But it doesn't have to be. There's a lot of people who do a lot of things that are noble on the outside. They look good. And they seem so, so sacrificial and selfless. But if you dig deep enough, they're doing it so people think well of them. There's a lot of people in the world who say that they are just like, they want to be just like Jesus. And they love Jesus, but they sure don't like his people. There's a lot of people who act like they follow Jesus But if you examine their life, it's not one that honors God. He didn't come just to accomplish so that we could live this way. He came so that we would able to be, be able to do these things in such a way that they would honor God, that they would truly be a blessing and worship to him. He saved you and me so that we could truly worship And he longed for your worship. He sought out your worship. And it was so important to him that he sent his son to make it possible for us. 
This is true worship, the goal of God's redemptive history. But now it's important that we understand this. It's important that we get some insight into what it looks like being played out. And so we don't stop at this, this foundational piece. We, we push forward to one more. Of what, is God, what, what does Jesus show us that true worship is in this passage? True worship is focused on the true God. True worship is focused on the true God. You see it in verse 23. It says the hour is coming and is now here when true worships will, worshipers will worship the Father. The Father, not, not, not some other being, not some God that's revealed himself some way that, 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 that a person has determined. The Father, he's his Father. Worship, true worship will always be focused on God. The God who created and then revealed himself in the scriptures. The God who created, reveals himself in the scripture and then chose to save, chose to send his son. And then who we find out is not a God that is, is, is three different modes. That's not a God that is just simply uh, three different gods, but is one God in three persons. True worship is always focused on this God. No small God, no false God, no different God. A false God can only be worshipped falsely. And I don't think any of us in this room are, are, are at the risk of p- building statues in our living room that we can burn incense in front of and bow down before. Maybe, maybe there's one or two that, that visit that, we'll, that, that we might meet that way. But in America, that's not the predominant way that we idolize things. I've seen it I, 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 around the world. It happens still. I've got pictures from China where, where people, where families were bowing down before a statue, burning incense, offering prayers. To a dead man. It's memorialized in a statue. I don't think that's the predominant way that we idolize things today. And in fact, I, I just would I, I would say that probably the false God that I struggle most with, maybe it's one that you're familiar with, is the approval of people. You see, I I don't idolize things so much. I idolize your opinions of me. And I'm thankful that God has delivered me in many ways, and I am seeing the gospel crush that idol, and I am seeing that overcome. But in so many ways in my life, over the, over the years of my life, I have, I have sought to control situations to make sure that I, had, that I was able to gain a good opinion from someone. Now, honestly, I didn't care if that person really believed something good about me so long as they would say something good about me. I, I mean, I was so far messed up that I, I, just tell me the lie. Man, you're great. Okay, that's all I need. It, it could be a, the biggest lie. Like, they may hate me. They may be talking bad about me behind my back and not mean any of it. I couldn't care less. I just wanted to feel like people liked me. So it shaped the way I made decisions. It shaped the way I decided to spend money. It shaped the way that I d- devoted time and effort in my life. It shaped everything about me. And when God righted my life, when he set me right side up, I began to see that the gospel was bigger than that. And that all my approval, all the acceptance, all the affirmation I longed for was in my creator, God. And I wish that I could tell you that my flesh didn't still raise its ugly head and try to get me to long for your approval more than his. But my heart tells me that God has fully accepted me in Christ and I am grateful.
You see, your idol may not look like approval. It may be more about comfort. It may be more about control. It may be something like money. And usually it's not always really money. It's really what money can provide. Stuff. Sometimes we think money gives us security. I don't know what it is. But I know it's something. The whole reason Jesus came so that you would no longer be trapped into worshiping those false gods falsely, but you could worship the true God truly. And in so doing, find freedom and joy that is everlasting. You see, he's not after your worship simply because he's some arrogant, uh, 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 narcissistic God. He is not Donald Trump, right? He's not after your worship because, because it makes him feel good, because it finally he gets what he deserves. He seeks your worship because it's in true worship that you find the greatest joy and blessing. The giving up of ourselves, the giving up in the, of, of the pursuit of things for self, the laying down of our life for, for his honor, for his glory, to serve him first, that's where eternal Life blossoms. That's where we get to enjoy the beauty and majesty and the blessing of the gospel most fully. But where we worship other things, we are no different than the rest of those found in the scriptures who worship false gods. True worship is always focused on the true God as he has revealed himself. True worship is expressed in spirit And in truth, again, go back to verse 23. True worshipers will worship the Father, the true God, in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. It's not one or the other. It's both. Spirit and truth. And there's a lot of discussion about what he means here. I think in the context we can kind of see it. We don't, have to, we don't have to guess too much. In the context, we, we see the correlation, we, we, or we see the, the contrast of the worship of the Samaritans and the worship of the Jews. The Samaritans, they had a, they had a desire. They had an internal desire for worship. This is, this is true of all people. Every person worships something. You go into the archaeologist, uh, um, 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 I can't think of the people who find new people groups, but you go into the deepest, darkest parts of, of the jungles and you find new people groups and, and they find that within their social structure they have a deity that they worship because we are always creating something to worship. Everyone does this. And so these Samaritans, they had this internal desire, this internal working, this internal compulsion to worship. They had a spirit for worship. But their worship was not true because their worship was not based on truth. Their worship, their, their worship was based on what they had determined. They had decided where they were going to worship God. They didn't know the God. In fact, they only accepted the first five books of the Bible as Scripture. So they missed out on all of the prof, prophets to that point. They, they missed out on everything that came after uh, uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy. They worshipped without knowledge. They worshipped without truth. Their worship was not acceptable. It was not true, though they had a spirit for it. I imagine that their worship services, there's great experience in it. But their worship was false because their, their teaching was false. 
On the other hand, you had the Jews. They had all of the scripture. They had the prophets. They had the the law. They, They had it all. They had all of the opportunity. And they were great theologians. They were studied. But as I mentioned a minute ago, Jesus, when he approached the Pharisees, he called them whitewashed tombs. They were dead inside. So they may have had the truth, but their worship was false because their spirits were not after the true God. And that's most clearly seen when Jesus comes and they reject their Messiah. You see, it's a both and thing. Spirit uh, worship must originate within us. Not within our own nature. Don't misunderstand me. There's no, 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 no coincidence that this chapter, that this event, that this moment that Jesus happened to move into in John chapter 4 expressly, immediately follows the, 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 the moment in John chapter 3. Like John didn't place it off someplace else in the story. He puts it right here for a reason. John chapter 3, a man comes to Jesus at night and he's like, hey, how can I, you know, we know you're from God. And Jesus is like, hey, here's how you have eternal life. You've got to be born you got to be born again. And then he goes on to explain that that means to be born of the Spirit, that you must be given spiritual life. You see, this, this internal compulsion, this, this internal desire for worship, it begins within us because it's been placed within us by the Spirit of God. What's born of the flesh is flesh, and what's born of the Spirit is spirit. We must be made alive. Our spirits must be made alive by God that we might worship the true God. But if all we have is experience, you might, you, might, you, might, you, you, you might apply it this way, or you might look at it, exemplify it this way in today's culture, today's uh, world. If all we had was experience, we'd be charismatics, we'd be Pentecostals, right? And I'm not trying to make fun or tear down. I'm, I'm just saying that in many ways they have abandoned doctrine for the, for the sake of experience because they long to experience worship but I don't think it's just Pentecostals that do that see I think the reality is is that in our, in our desires to attract crowds and our desires to build big churches we have moved to a place where we got programs and external functions that try to draw people into worship Worship always originates within us as the Spirit moves in and makes us alive. It's not external. It's not, it's not external workings. It's not, it, it, if, if the music is wrong and you can't worship, this might be an indication. If, if, the, if the lights aren't just right, brothers and sisters, we have to be careful. Our spirits must be made alive by the Spirit that we might worship truly. And we must worship in truth. We must know the truth. We cannot abandon doctrine. We can't accept false doctrine for the sake of experience. We can't give up truth and knowing it so so we can simply feel good. No, that's not what our culture is about. Like, we're, we're going to get rid of the God of the Old Testament. We don't like the God of the Old Testament in, in, in current days, right? I mean, the God of the Old Testament, man, he was a judge. He was, he was pretty tough. He, he was all about righteousness and justice. And, and he was going to, man, he was, all about, he was all about just clearing the world and making it a good place. But the God of the New Testament, man, we really appreciate him. 
Well, he's all about love and compassion and mercy. It just makes us feel all warm and fuzzy inside. It's the same God. It always has been, always will be. We must know this God. We must know the truth about this God. We cannot get rid of the doctrines that the Bible teaches. We cannot get rid of God's revelation of himself, his complete revelation of himself. We cannot, we cannot get rid of it. We can't look away from it for the sake of experience. We've got to know the truth about us. And the way that we know the truth about us is we see ourselves in light of the truth about God. The more we understand his holiness, the more we understand our sinfulness. We have to know that the only thing we deserve from him, the only thing God owes us outside of Christ, the only thing that we can gain from him is death and condemnation. We have to know these things. We have to know this truth, and we have to know the truth about what makes us acceptable, what makes us able to truly worship. Jesus' perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his victorious resurrection. We must know this truth. When we know this truth, our spirits can be quickened that they might worship. Good doctrine leads to true doxology. Good doctrine, good teaching leads to true worship. Doctrine that doesn't lead to true doxology is not good. It doesn't matter how accurate it is. It doesn't matter how much it might make sense to us. No matter how it feels good to us, if it's not rooted in the truth of God, in the truth of his word, in his revelation to us, then it is going to lead us to a false worship. So what is worship? It's God's goal in the redemptive history. True worship is always focused on the true God, and true worship is expressed in spirit and in truth. We come to this final question. Is my worship true? Let's just do an inventory. What a... What does the expression of your life indicate is the focus of your worship? What do you prioritize in your life? Like if you were to open up your checkbook, to write down the amount of time you spend on, on certain things, list the things that you just will not miss. Like if you're going to miss it, you, you'll, say, you, you, you'll, you'll, you'll part to see so you can make sure that you're at this thing or taking part in this event. Or What are those things that you prioritize? And as you think about those things, is it because you long to see God glorified or because you're trying to find your happiness and your joy and your satisfaction, your comfort, your approval, your, your control, your security? You know, what are you looking for in them? Because the reality is, is that in, in the life of a person who's seeking to truly worship, you'll see them working lots of hours. You'll see them coming to church on Sunday. You'll see them... Uh, taking time off and relaxing and, and recreating. You'll see them giving money away. You'll see them serving uh, one another in the church and, and striving to, to do a work in the world. And that can all be given and done to honor God. But it can all be done to secure salvation for ourselves. 
which is simply worship of self. Why do you do what you do? Do you know truth? Do you seek to know more truth? Do you long to know the God of the Bible? Are you willing to confess that you are apart from him, broken and needy and undeserving and only able to stand in his presence by his grace and goodness? Are, are you willing? Are you thankful? Do you desire that the, the point of your life would be to see the goal of his mission in redemptive history successful, that you might truly worship him? Does that bring you great joy that he seeks after you for your worship? John Calvin wrote this. We should consider it the great end of our existence to be found numbered among the worshipers of God. God has sought out true worship. There is no greater purpose to give ourselves to than to truly worship him. With our hearts, with our souls, with our minds, head, hands, and heart, every part of our being to glorify him. Let's pray. Well, Father, we know that we are unworthy. We know that we are undeserving. But by your grace, you have seen fit to save us and empower our worship. Would you show us those places that we direct our worship to, to idols? Would you show us the things that we prioritize above you? Would you show us the things that we long for more than you? That we might apply the gospel and, and see those idols undone? See them crushed and set aside? Father, would you, would you confront us, convict us, that we might repent and we might turn and truly worship you? I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.